Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Our next case is Batson versus Coastal Resources Commission. Um, Justice Dietz is recused in this matter. Uh, we'll hear from the appellant. Thank you. May it please the court, Chief Justice and Justices, I am Mary Lucas from the North Carolina Department. I represent the Coastal Resources Commission. With me today is Commissioner Sheila Holman. I would like to reserve three minutes for rebuttal. The bridge from the mainland over the straits to Harker's Island was failing and unsafe. The North Carolina Department of Transportation designed a replacement bridge based on multiple technical studies using a consensus process that took place over many years involving multiple federal agencies and state agencies, including the Division of Coastal Management, which I may refer to as DCM, who is the commission's delegated um, staff who handles permit decisions. The bridge design chosen was the least environmentally damaging practical alternative, which is a federal standard. When the Division of Coastal Management issued a CAMA permit for the selected bridge design, the petitioners sought to challenge the CAMA permit. The petitioners did not like the impact that the project had on their property. They argued that the design was not the alternative of least impact on the CAMA estuary, and CAMA refers to the Coastal Area Management Act, and I'll refer to it as CAMA throughout. But the petitioners argued that it wasn't the alternative of least impact to the CAMA estuary resources, public trust waters, water quality, and adjacent private properties. This is not the standard for evaluating CAMA permit applications. CAMA balances the right of property owners uh, while protecting coastal resources. CAMA does not require that a permitted development have the least impact on natural resources. Therefore, in exercising its gatekeeper role to prevent frivolous litigation, the commission denied the request, holding that petitioner's one-page summary failed to meet their burden under CAMA to allege facts or make legal arguments to demonstrate that a hearing would not be frivolous. On judicial review, the trial court disagreed with the commission's interpretation of, the legal, of this legal standard and remanded to the Office of Administrative Hearings. Petitioners filed a contested case at the Office of Administrative Hearings. The North Carolina Department of Transportation quickly settled the suit, and then petitioners filed an attorney fee award. The Superior Court awarded fees against the commission of approximately $90,000. Before the trial court has discretion to award attorneys fees under General Statute 6-19.1, they have to make two findings. The first one is the issue before us today, whether the agency's decision on the, on the case was substantially justified. Using an objective standard, this court should hold that the commission was substantially justified based on the existing facts and law known to the commission at the time it made its decision. The Court of Appeals did not address the commission's remaining challenges to the attorney fee award. If this court holds that the agency's decision was not substantially justified, then remand to the Court of Appeals for consideration of the remaining challenges is, I think, the procedural way to go. May, may I ask sure. you a question about the statutory language in 6-19.1? Uh, so I'm looking at, at A1, the, the provision on requiring substantial justification or, or a finding that the agency acted without, substan without substantial justification. And, and there are the words, in pressing its claim against the party. So as I, it seems that the legislature was concerned here about overbearing government agencies um, pressing claims that, for which there's no r real basis. Was there any kind of claim pressed here? Um, is it pressing a claim simply to rule on, you know, whether a, uh, the, the frivolity review, is that, is that pressing a claim? It has been the commission's position that it's not. Um, however, in this case, I believe the only issue before this court has to do with whether or not the commission's position was substantially justified. And here, I don't think in making a decision, which it was required to do by the legislature as a gatekeeper, you could call that pressing a claim. So that would be a basis for finding uh, that the commission should not have been awarded fees under that statute. As I um, talk with you today, there are really two parts to the argument. First, I want to address 
why even if the Commission's interpretation of frivolous, uh, the frivolous standard was incorrect, the Commission's interpretation was substantially justified. And the second piece of my argument is I want to go through the existing law and facts that were before the Commission at the time it made its decision. This court has adopted a middle ground objective standard. The agency is required to demonstrate that its position at the time it made the decision was justified to a degree that could satisfy a reasonable person under the existing law and facts at the time it made its decision. And that is in Crowell Constructors. This court has held that that determination is primarily a legal one. And I think that's true. In this case, and I, we don't disagree, um, in this case, the, the trial court disagreed with the commission's interpretation of frivolous under the gatekeeper statute. The commission did not appeal. As a result of that lack of appealing the substantive issues before the trial court, petitioners now say that this court should give deference to the trial court's uh, determination that we lost. Um, what does that mean, though, in this case when we're looking at attorney's fees? We have a trial court that was sitting as an appellate court it didn't make any credibility determinations based on testimony. It didn't have any trial court involvement with the parties as was considered by the United States Supreme Court in Pierce. Um, instead, I think that petitioner's argument that this court give deference to the decision by the trial court is simply a request that this court apply an outcome determinative decision on whether or not there was substantial justification. Um, that is not the position this court has taken. This court has established a standard in Crowell that was applied in Winkler that makes clear that even if the trial court disagreed with the commission's interpretation of frivolous, this court um, can find that an incorrect interpretation of the law um, does not make the agency unjustified. For example, as you saw in Winkler, there was a licensing board that made a determination about how to interpret what it, what it means to restore a pool system. The interpretation um, in that case was simply uh, disagreed with by the appellate courts. They did not agree that restoration was what that plumber did in that case. Nevertheless, a fee award was found uh, not appropriate because the licensing agency's determination of what restoration meant was not irrational or legitimate, even if not accepted by the court. A similar result happened in the Crowell case. The facts of that case established that sand piles mined decades ago had developed uh, topsoil on which vegetation grew. And as a result, the agency had penalized the company for mining. And the question was the determination of mining. In that case, there was no appeal of the determination, yet it was found that looking at which party prevailed um, be, makes the consideration less um, a question of what the party's position was at the time it made a decision and more about who won. This court has said that's not the appropriate standard to use. After looking at the record in Crowell, this court found that even though it disagreed with the agency's interpretation of mining, the agency was not without substantial justification in its interpretation of what constituted mining and overturned the fee award. The Court of Appeals has also looked at things, and those decisions, of course, are not binding on this court, but it can be helpful to consider what kinds of um, fact situations and legal situations they found um, rendered an agency not substantially justified. There was a situation in which you had Daily Express, which was a trucking com company penalized for having an overweight truck the attorney fee award in that case was overturned because even though the Court of Appeals found that they did not ultimately accept respondents' construction um, of the statute, that was had some level of support and logic and the language of the General Assembly. And that's the kind of situation you see here. A different result was reached in two cases, the Tay and the Table Rock case, in which there was actually evidence that the agency acted knowing that the law it was applying was incorrect. Um, but here, the results are distinguishable. The petitioners submitted a petition for fees and costs. They argued that um, the commission had performed an improper application of a standard and had done an, an evaluation of the merits of the case. That is, the commission had applied the wrong standard. 
and assumed that petitioners had to show that they were likely to prevail. The trial court considered an affidavit from uh, Derb Carter in which he went through a really interesting uh, description of what happened in 1995. But that affidavit says nothing about how the commission uh, applied the standard today. The, the trial court also had before it uh, the affidavit from uh, Chairman Renee Cahoon, who said that she knew what the statute required, that is the application of a frivolous standard. She applied the frivolous standard, and she did that by seeing whether petitioners had met their burden to allege facts and make legal determinations um, to demonstrate that a hearing would not be frivolous. The majority opinion at paragraph 32 suggests that the commission's decision, the Carter affidavit, the number of denials by the chair and language in a different final agency decision also applying the frivolous standard could provide grounds for the trial court to find that the commission knowingly applied the wrong standard, which would constitute a lack of substantial justification. The Court, uh, the court of Appeals majority opinion remanded for additional fact finding for a determination on what the commission's intent was and whether they did apply a wrong standard. I think um, it, in our opinion, the Court of Appeal erred in remanding for additional fact-finding for two reasons. First, on remand, first, remand is not required because on the plain language of the Commission's decision, it's clear that the Commission applied the correct standard. In the decision, the Commission provided a detailed review of each claim on petitioner's one-page list and explained why it concluded the petitioners had failed to meet its threshold burden to demonstrate a non-frivolous basis to challenge the CAMLIC permit. The Court of Appeals majority decision actually recognizes, and I'm quoting here, the commission thoroughly analyzed each conceivable ground asserted in the petitioner's one-page petition. And I, my quote continues, the trial court rejected the reasoning and found it to be wrong, but the commission's stated reason, although wrong, on their face are ones that a reasonable person could find satisfactory and justifiable. That's it right there. Even the majority opinion recognizes that the commission's decision was on its face, one that a reasonable position, er, person could find substantially justified. I've wondered why the majority opinion speculated as to the commission's intent and whether they were intentionally applying a wrong standard. And I can't be sure, of course. There was no oral argument. Perhaps things weren't particularly clear. But I think most importantly, the commission misreads the majority decision, which I agree was detailed and exhaustive. In the last sentence of paragraph 30 of the majority opinion, the majority opinion states that the commission determined repeatedly that it would be frivolous, and it, without quoting from the commission's decision, says the basis for that was because there was no administrative jurisdiction, which is correct, that was one of the reasons given by the commission. And then the Court of Appeals majority opinion goes on to say, and because the commission found that petitioners could not prevail on their claims. This is simply incorrect. The commission's decision does not use that language. It does not include that phrase. Instead, what the commission's decision states is that petitioners have failed to identify any rules violated by the concerns raised. They failed to identify any manner in which their issues reflect an inconsistency between the permit and CAMA. As a result, as a result of those findings, the commission held that petitioners had failed to, their, to meet their burden to allege facts or make legal decisions to demonstrate a commit, uh, appeal would not be frivolous. I think this misstatement of the commission's holding is the reason for the remand for additional findings about whether the commission applied the wrong standard. Such a remand is unnecessary. The commission did not determine that petitioners would not prevail on appeal on its face. The Commission's stated reasons for denying the request are ones that a reasonable person could find satisfactory and justifiable. Therefore, this Court should find that the Commission's position was substantially justified. The second reason we argue the majority erred in remanding for additional fact-finding is because although the majority opinion stated that it's unclear whether the trial court knowingly applied the wrong standard, and that's at paragraph 33 of the majority opinion. The trial court's orders are not at all unclear. In the petition for judicial review order 
and the attorney fee order, the Honorable Charles Henry, now retired, clearly states that the, the sole disputed issue before the trial court was the interpretation and application of the word phrase, not frivolous. In granting the petition for judicial review, what the trial court did was they applied, it applied its own standard based on a dictionary definition, um, that is whether the permit violations alleged were groundless or of little weight or importance. Uh, at the time the trial court accepted that dictionary definition, it had all the information referred to by the Court of Appeal in the record. And although the Superior Court disagreed with the Commission's interpretation of frivolous, it did not adopt petition's argument, which was made at the Superior Court level, that the Commission knowingly and intentionally applied an incorrect standard that required petitioners to show a substantial likelihood of prevailing. Instead, the trial court's orders recognized that the Commission applied and interpreted the frivolous standard so it's clear there is no dispute the trial court was focused on whether it agreed with the commission's application of a frivolous standard or not, but it did not hold and it, in fact stepped away from petitioner's request that it hold that a prevailing party standard be implied instead. instead. As the majority opinion recognizes our statute 6.19.1 does not require specific findings on substantial justification you don't have to say the basis for substantial justification. You have to do that for attorney's fees. The trial court decision did that on attorney's fees. But in fact, all you have to do is make a finding of substantial justification. The trial court did so based on its disagreement with the commission's interpretation of the frivolous standard. Moreover, the information referred to in the majority opinion, which was before the trial court, is actually simply inadequate to support a finding that a reasonable person could find the CRC intentionally applied a prevailing party standard as opposed to a frivolous standard. So unlike in Tay or Table Rock, where the information before the appellate court was that the agency had knowingly misapplied a standard or not followed their own law as in Table Rock, um, here the record provides no such evidence. On its face, we have the Carter Affidavit that says nothing about how this commission applied the frivolous standard. It confirms the frivolous standard is the right standard. The chair's affidavit confirms she applied the frivolous standard. The number of um, third party hearing requests denied has been raised as a explanation or as evidence that the wrong um, standard was um, applied. But in fact, sheer numbers is not persuasive here. You know nothing. The trial court knew nothing about the facts on which those requests were denied. The commission faces many, many requests for standards. It can be because there's a dispute with a neighbor. It can be because of a property dispute. It can be because of concern over whether the HOA's bylaws are properly enforced or whether the town's ordinances were enforced. None of those things provide a rational basis to uh, challenge the camel permit. Certainly, Given that um, the substantial justification is an objective standard, it would be inappropriate to reopen the record at trial court and look behind the language in the commission's decision in this or other cases. It would be intrusive and invasive to remand for additional findings on the commission's intention. What would that look like? Would there be discovery? Would the uh, superior court take testimony about what the commission intended? That's just simply an unworkable standard. What we have here is an objective standard based on the law and the facts before the commission at the time it made its decision. Uh, there is no basis to second guess or redo that hearing because the trial court was clear that the legal standard issue um, was a frivolous standard. It disagreed with the commission's interpretation of frivolous, but that is not a basis to find in this case that the commission was, was not substantially justified. If there are no questions about the substantial justification portion of my argument, I would move next to looking at the facts and the law that were before the commission at the time it made its decision. The existing facts, those are what were in the record before the commission. We know that from the APA, 
um, 150B-51 explains that the, the official record is what was before the commission. That actually aligns with the substantial justification standard, which requires that this court look at what the commission knew, what facts was, were before it at the time it made its decision. A third party hearing request at that time was a 15 day expedited process. We now get 30 days, the legislature has changed that rule. But it, it does not take, um, there's no testimony, there's no live hearing, it's presented on the record and in the third party hearing process established by the General Assembly, the petitioners have the burden of proof. Petitioners concede that the information they provided to the commission consisted of a one page attachment that merely summarized their concerns. And that's a petitioner's brief at three. The record before the commission is in your record on appeal. It's a 500 page or so block of documents and it also includes DCM's recommendations and additional documents provided by DCM from the merger process that show how concerns raised had been addressed and that the final permit was issued in a manner that was consistent with CAMA and the commission's rules. The record before the commission does not include affidavits that were submitted after the fact, after the commission made its decision in support of requests for injunctions against North Carolina Department of Transportation. None of that is, was before the commission at the time it made its decision and they shouldn't, that information should not be included in considering whether or not the commission was substantially justified in deciding uh, that uh, the request was frivolous. What we have is a one page document that uses the wrong standard that doesn't um, say why its concerns are inconsistent with the CAMA statutes. Basically what happened is that the petitioners did not connect the dots in their one page summary argument. That was their burden. Whether or not they could have done it as they developed a much more robust record later on injunctions um, is not the question here. They didn't, it was their burden, they should have done it. And so when we look at whether the commission was substantially justified, what we have is what was before the commission, which was a one page summary of petitioner's concerns. I'd like to pivot next and talk about the existing law known to the commission or reasonably believed by the agency at the time it acted. Under CAMA, as we know, the commission serves as a gatekeeper to determine if uh, petitioners have met their threshold burden. The commission is charged and it knows uh, CAMA very well because it's the agency that implements policies, guidelines, standards, and adopts rules for the North Carolina Coastal Management Program. CAMA is unusual in that it has that gatekeeper function, but it's not unusual for the legislature to do that. They've done it in med mail cases. They also have um, one for the shellfish um, commission. The, the legislature can in fact impose these kind of requirements and they did in this case. In order to succeed in their request, the petitioners need to show three things. They have to list rules and statutes. They have to show how they were directly affected and they have to allege facts or make legal arguments to show that a, to demonstrate that a hearing would not be frivolous. And based on the record that the petitioners provided, uh, the commission explained in its detailed decision that the petitioners had met the first two requirements but not the third. The record as we've discussed already has established that the commission applied the frivolous standard. Frivolous is not defined in CAMA. However, cases on the appellate level have explained that it's something is frivolous if a proponent can provide no rational basis um, based on evidence or the law. The stand, that standard requires the commission to use its knowledge of CAMA to decide whether the concerns raised, almost like an Anders brief, um, have actually identified anything within its jurisdiction, jurisdiction that shows a violation of the law. Using its knowledge of that program, the commission is able to identify if there's an incorrect statement of the law, which was the case in the, here, least impact is not a CAMA standard. It also can determine, determine whether concerns raised show a violation of the rules. And it went through exhaustive detail to give the petitioners the benefit of a doubt to show and determine if they had um, demonstrated something that would rise to the level of being getting, receiving a contested case hearing. But in fact it didn't. Petitioners 
provided a list of statutes without explaining why they were relevant. They sh shared concerns without explaining which statutory provision or rules were violated. They misstate the legal standard and they just didn't connect the dots because they failed to carry their burden. The commissioner found they were not, um, that their request was frivolous and denied it. Now petitioners alleged today in their argument or in their briefing at least, that all they need to do is make a minimal allegation. All they have to do is assert concerns that are facially reasonable. But these definitions, these, these, these are not the CAMA definition. The trial court used a different definition as well, um, and that was not appealed. They focused, the trial court focused on whether, um, according to the dictionary, things are groundless or of little weight or importance. But both of these explanations pull the definition definition of frivolous out of the context of CAMA, which requires an allegation of facts and a demonstration of legal arguments before something can get a, a hearing at OAH. Now the fact that um, the trial court was focused on the importance of something is really not the standard here because something can be very, very important. What side of the road are the utilities gonna be on? Are they gonna be on petitioner's side of the road or are they gonna be on the other side of the road? That can be very, very important, but it doesn't mean that it's a violation of CAMA and it would be frivolous to have a contested case in OAH on something that is not a violation of the rules. So at the time it made its decision, the commission's interpretation of the frivolous standard considered whether there was any rational basis for holding a hearing in OAH. And a reasonable interpretation by the commission focused on the words in the statute, were facts alleged, were arguments made within the jurisdiction of the commission. Um, the trial court disagreed, but the fact that the trial disagreed is not uh, binding with this court nor determinative of the issue of substantial justification. Even, even though the trial court disagreed with the commission's uh, interpretation of what is frivolous, the language and the interpretation that the commission used was based on the statute and it is um, something that this court should find substantially justified based on what was known to the commission at the time, both the facts and the law. So in conclusion, I wanted to note Council, that on well, appeal. Council, you're well within your rebuttal time. Thank you. On appeal, both the dissent and the majority opinion in the Court of Appeals held that the Superior Court order awarding fees should be vacated. The Commission agrees. The Commission respectfully requests this Court reverse the majority decision of the Court of Appeals, remanding for additional findings, that it uphold the dissenting opinion on the issue of substantial justification, and it hold that the Commission, despite failing to prevail on the merits of its claim, was substantially justified as a matter of law in its application of the frivolous standard. In addition, the commission requests that the um, matter be remanded to superior court um, for dismissal of the petition's motion for attorney's fees. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. We'll hear from the appellee. Good afternoon. My name is Clark Wright. I'm an attorney with Davis Hartman Wright out of Newburn, North Carolina, and for better or worse, I've been doing this for 40 years. Why are we here? We are here because of a dissent by Judge Tyson on the Court of Appeals, which almost personally <laughs> attacked my character with regard to the amount of fees and how that was documented, and rambles on about how these final agency decisions, even though they say final agency decisions, should not be subject to review under 6-19.1. Well, the majority opinion literally called that almost nonsense. I don't know why Judge Tyson reasoned the way he did, but I speculate that it has to do a bit with the fact that he's been a, a great jurist and attorney for decades and is still in the camp, if you will, of the American rule. Each side should have to bear its cost, except in rare, narrow circumstances. Well, I would argue to you that one reason we're here today is because of the explosive growth of the administrative state in the last 
40 or 50 years, and that that is one reason the General Assembly felt compelled to enact 6-19.1 and a number of other similar provisions that have actually been amended to, if you will, make them a little tougher on agency decision making. Count Justice Counsel. Allen, you <coughs> raised a good point, which I'm going to. Uh, actually, I'd like to okay. follow up with. Yes. Um, so I would like you to address this language in 16-19.1A1 that says a required finding for attorney's fees is that the agency acted without substantial justification in pressing its claim against the party. And what I'm having conceptual difficulty with is seeing how the, this, this, this gatekeeper function really can fairly be called pressing a claim against a party. So maybe you can help me understand. I would first direct you to the title of 6-19.1. The title refers to both the state initiating and pressing a claim or a claim being brought by somebody else being uh, dealt with by an agency, a regulatory agency as part of the administrative state. Uh, in fact, excuse me, I think the language is uh, attorney's fees to parties appealing or defending against agency decisions. And in this case, of course, we're appealing an agency decision, but in essence, we're also seeking or were seeking to simply be heard in the Office of Administrative Hearings on our client's concern. And I've mentioned this case to a, a number of lay people, and when, when I tell them that the Division of Coastal Management submitted almost 500 pages in a staff recommendation on this simple gatekeeper issue, and when I tell them that the agency says we should not be heard because there were years of merger team and all this stuff was done. Well, if that was the case in any extended permitting process, then I guess nobody could appeal it because it wouldn't, they wouldn't have anything that wasn't frivolous because the agencies looked at it so hard for so long. That's the problem. The administrative state has gotten so huge and has left the average person who either owns land or seeks to to do development in a simple way, facing a, a myriad of regulations and requirements and long processes and so on and so forth, all our clients ever asked for was the opportunity to be heard before an impartial decision maker, i.e. an administrative law judge. Why are all these agencies, Coastal Management, the CRC, DOJ, DOT, why are they so afraid to have their decision-making processes subject to some transparency and some accountability before an impartial decision-maker? In this case, this gatekeeper process, the CRC, which has delegated it to one person, the chair, is both judge, jury, and executioner, all rolled into one. And oh, by the way, I think it's a fair inference that they're going to be biased because they're the commission that is dealing with the same staff that made the permit decision. They work together every day uh, to carry out their mission. They're sincere in many respects about it, but it's, I would submit it's, it's darn near impossible for them to be objective and impartial in considering third-party permit appeal requests under this gatekeeper process. And let's talk about that. I've actually had a chief superior court judge question whether the process is constitutional. How could it be that people that we, the, the state concedes are impacted, the state concedes they've identified statutes and rules and, and use standards within the CAMA program, but they say that everything that our clients raised is frivolous. Um, I would turn the court's attention to the last sentence on the simple one-page form that you fill out to file a request for permission to be heard. It says, attach a sheet of paper. 
doesn't say attach a litany counsel for the commission says oh we failed to carry our burden how big a burden can or should it be when you've got 20 days to put something together and the state's own document says attach a single sheet of paper and let's let's not be disingenuous in that 450 plus page staff recommendation that came from the, the Division of Coastal Management, and there you get into kind of the, the differentiation between the commission and, and the staff and the department. But in that document are close to 20 pages of emails, letters, objections, concerns, forms filled out by Appleese, the Baldwins and the Batsons. Now, I suppose one could quibble it at the end of this one sheet of paper to put, we incorporate by reference all the stuff we've said before to you that you've ignored over the past five years. You didn't put that in there. And oh, by the way, at that time, the petitioners were not represented by any council. They're sitting there looking at this form looking at what it says, attach a sheet of paper. And they crammed as much as they could into that sheet of paper. But I would submit to you it's outrageous for the state to claim and assert that people who they admit are affected, people who they admit have cited to the statute and rules that are at issue, are somehow supposed to do it all on a single sheet of paper to simply request, they're requesting permission to be heard. This is not a case where the decision is about the merits and in terms of the issue of substantial justification. So we're not talking about a tough call or an interpretation of an ambiguous statute that you know, gets to the merits of an actual agency determination. This is not about whether the, the DOT major development camera permit was properly issued or not. It's only about whether we have complied with the simple requirements in 113A-121.1B. Hey, are you impacted? Yes, they concede. Hey, have you identified some concerns you have relative to the statute and rules? Yes, they concede. And C, have you said enough to demonstrate that that's not frivolous? Well, I would submit to you that if you just take the big stack of 500 pages, that's the record that Council for the Commission says is the only thing that we should be concerned about at the time, that alone tells you it's not frivolous. Well, as I understand their argument, they're saying that, that the concerns that were raised, that, the, um, that there wasn't going to have the least impact, that that's frivolous because that's not a ground on which to, to question the permit. And so I, I'm looking at um, page 267 of the record, which I think is where the May 12th, 2019 hearing request is. And, and I guess it would help me to hear uh, under the facts that are alleged in this original, this initial request for the hearing. Um, the, it states the, the um, a five to 18 foot high sheet pile bulkhead is to be constructed adjacent to our properties with no design considerations for wave storm actions, erosion, property loss, etc. Can you explain why the, the, these allegations or these statements um, raise something that is not frivolous under the CAMA rules that should have been heard? Well, uh Justice Earls, I would first point to the fact that counsel for the commission states that it's an objective standard we look at here. Well, I guess the perhaps flippant answer would be, well, once we got the right to go to OAH, within a matter of weeks, we got a half million dollar settlement that involved just that. Living shoreline solutions designed to mitigate against the impacts of those huge sheet piles that are immediately adjacent to the James Creek Estuary, where it outlets into the Straits there on Harker's Island. And if you look at the, the aerials over time, there's already been significant impacts from the existing bridge to the way that estuary flushes and gets renourished in and out, the sedimentation that's built up, the, the accreted land. And that's another issue. Council has 
characterized our concerns as a backdoor effort to get more money or as uh, issues of dollars and cents and and so on and so forth and and as an issue of trying to get property rights determined by an agency that doesn't get to do that. I'm the first to concede that the Division of Coastal Management and the Coastal Resources Commission cannot address and resolve property rights disputes. But, but think about this, and this was the only point our clients made in their comments and later me as their counsel in various filings. If DOT doesn't own this very large accreted portion of land that this bridge is going on, and instead our clients own it, don't you think that that's a potentially material piece of information for not only the division in its review process to look at, but all the other reviewing agencies, state and federal? All those agencies were told what we would say is an, an incorrect statement of fact that hey, the state owns all this other land, so when they're putting their pilings and digging and messing around with that, well, that's their property. And, of course, the state has rights over submerged lands, so, you know, this is not impacting private property. And CAMA is indeed a balancing statute of property rights issues and uh, the tragedy of the commons, you know, public trust issues and protection of public resources. But if if, as we think will be the case, we prove to some court entity in the separate condemnation proceedings that we have superior title to that accretion area, that changes the game materially in terms of riparian rights impacts, what would be the, the, the proper, least impactful alternative. And while the CAMA statute and its implementing rules don't say in black and white, you gotta do the least impactful alternative, there are dozens of use standards cited by our clients and elsewhere that speak to that issue in other ways. And, and CAMA itself talks about the need to balance public issues of resource protection with private property rights. Well, if you don't even know who owns the property, how can you do that? And again, all our clients were doing was asking to be heard. Let's turn the tables. What if? What if the only way I could get here is if I could convince Ms. Lucas that I've got a, a non-frivolous issue to bring to you and she's on the other side? What do you think she's likely to say? Oh, no, that's frivolous. We studied that in detail. Have a nice day. That's not what due process is and that's not what this provision was, was intended to allow for. And Two things that you didn't hear from counsel for the commission is one, any reference to this court's landmark decision decades ago that I was in the middle of, Empire Power. And Empire Power says in black and white, and the state concedes this, that the North Carolina Administrative Procedures Act itself confers a right to go be heard unless a state's specific organic legislation expressly provides to the contrary. And of course, the CAMA statute does expressly provide to the contrary in 113A-121.1B and those simple three criteria. The relevance of the Carter Affidavit is simply to give the legislative history. It used to require that the standard be shown by a third party was likelihood of success on the merit. Well, by the way, we met that one, too, when the TROs and the PI were issued. Judges stated we had a likelihood of success on the merit. But that's not the standard. And it was reduced to not frivolous because at about the same time, the statute was also amended so that there's not an automatic stay anymore. In other words, the, ra the fundamental rationale I would submit to you all for having this gatekeeper process in the first place was the fact that initially, if a third party met that standard, the higher standard likelihood of success on the merits, the permit was stayed until the entire uh, process was finished, which could result in significant damage to the permit applicant and now the permit holder, in this case DOT, 
And we've tried to emphasize again and again, there's nowhere in any of our filings that we've said that this bridge should not be replaced and relocated to where it, I mean, by definition, you would think an agency charged with balancing property rights and resource protection issues would want to pick the alternative that does the least damage to, to all of those things. And if someone comes along and says, I, it's my ox being gored, it's coming right through my front yard, and here's some concerns I have, and oh, by the way, one of the petitioners is, ironically, on the CRC itself. First call I got, he, Larry Baldwin was like, what in the world can I do here? They've told me that my 40-year career and my expertise and me reading where it says one sheet of paper, that all of that's frivolous. And I told him, fight. Maybe someone would argue that was self-serving or not, but I think he should have fought. And when he fought, we've won at every stage, except I will, the one thing I will concede and agree with counsel for the commission on is that the Court of Appeals opinion, opinions, plural, are a bit of a jumbled uh, bag. And I don't understand. I don't understand it's like ships passing in the night. When I read Pierce versus Underwood, Underwood it says, as Justice Scalia put it, that if we're gonna try to decide who to uh, you know, lean on here, abuse of discretion with deference to the trial court, which is the same trial court that heard all the prior proceedings and determined that the agency had acted unlawfully. Well, let's not forget, that's, that's set, that's a prerequisite here. The Coastal Resources Commission acted unlawfully in denying these requests to be heard. That's what Judge Henry determined, and that order, granting judicial review, was not appealed. And the case law is, of course, clear that the fact that you were wrong and acted unlawfully as a regulatory body doesn't end the matter. You can still be found to have been substantially justified. But the cases where substantial justification has been found usually involve, again, a merits-based decision uh, of significance. The Winkler case, people died. I myself stayed in that motel a week before the carbon monoxide killed those three. And the commission involved there, um, Mr. Winkler became the scapegoat. And went through all this long drawn out procedure and provisions and, and Justice Beasley wrote the, uh, Chief Justice Beasley then wrote the opinion and says yes, getting back to uh, Justice Allen, your question, yes, that was a matter that should be covered by the statute, just as yes, the majority opinion says so here, and I believe that's the law of the case, unless, and I will concede this, if it's 12H3 subject matter jurisdiction, you know, y'all can uh, rule on that at any time in any way you see fit because subject matter jurisdiction is fundamental to, to whether a case or controversy should or shouldn't be heard. But there's no doubt that we have hundreds of cases if you include the Equal Access to Justice Act cases which are referenced with approval by this court and the appellate court uh, in determining what 6-19.1 means, the EJA cases, similar standard, only a one or two word difference between the federal EJA statutory language and 6-19.1 statutory language. And again, it's only about, in this case, substantial justification, as I was hiking along around Mount Rainier last week, for what? Substantial justification for determining that these concerns on a $50 million bridge project, which inspired the, the state regulators to put together a 500-page packet of information and drop it on the CRC chair's desk and say, look, all of this stuff's already been addressed. And these people, it's got to be frivolous because Everybody spent four years, you know, doing all this stuff. I think just the opposite. I think that's what tells you that it's far from frivolous. That these are precisely the kinds of concerns that 
this august body was concerned about an empire power when it held that the APA, the North Carolina APA itself, provides a substantive right to be heard unless there's very specific directives by the General Assembly to the contrary. And my point in citing empire power is I think those exceptions should be construed narrowly not only because of empire power, which was a unanimous decision, and by the way, I was on the losing side there. I was arguing on behalf of my client that uh, the only place these third parties could go challenging a water or air permit was to the Superior Court on judicial review when they didn't get a chance to develop a record or be heard in OAA. Well, I lost. and and. Empire power is a resounding statement that we, we, the Supreme Court, and our Constitution, and the United States Constitution's provisions on due process, if we're going to make a mistake, let's err on the side of letting people be heard. And it's like ships passing in the night. Counsel for the Commission cites Pierce v. Underwood and says, we win. They cite the Griffin case and say, well, that's how you define what is and isn't frivolous, and we win. Well, then Judge Jackson, later Justice Jackson, who wrote the very short and simple opinion in, in that case, says we look with a far more forgiving eye to these gatekeeper requests to be heard. As she says at the end of that opinion, this doesn't guarantee that you win, but you get to at least open the courthouse door. And if your claims are weak, 12B6 is there, 12C, 56, you've got all kinds of opportunities for the state to summarily get rid of cases. I would submit to you that this case is the perfect example of what's wrong with the way the administrative state is, is or isn't working. Oh, well, we spend all these resources to say it's frivolous. And that affidavit that was referred to by counsel for the commission proudly discloses that the chair has denied at that time 90% of the third party permit appeal requests that had come before it. 90%. Some probably were and are frivolous. I find it fascinating if you look at I'm glad it's there that that affidavit at the end has a little table summarizing the basis for all of those 40 denials. And in the majority of them, the person clearly was aggrieved, had standing, and clearly had cited to a CAMA provision. But, hey, we're judge, jury, and executioner. Let's don't spend any time at OAH. We've already looked at all that, so it must be frivolous. I think the presumption should be to look with a, a pretty scrutinizing eye on the chair saying that someone who is impacted, is aggrieved, has standing, has cited two provisions, only has 20 days, probably doesn't have an attorney. Oh, well, it's frivolous because, hey, we know our program best. And we've looked at all of that. and. We don't see a problem, so denied. Think about that. 40 out of 44 different entities, individuals, and groups who clearly had been affected by CAMA permitting decisions were told, you don't get to go to court in any way, shape, or form because you're frivolous. Think about that. That's just plain wrong, at least as I read our Constitution. And as I read the concept of due process, and as I read those things in the context of empire power and in the context of this monstrous growth of the administrative state, which I've benefited greatly from. I hated administrative law in law school at Carolina, but then suddenly I get into the real world and everything anyone does, you're, you're stuck with dealing with a regulator, a bunch of permits, what you can and can't do, and it's become the bread and butter of my career. And, and the point is that while I was advocating passionately for this client at the time, and I am now for mine here, obviously, uh, I was wrong on opposing 
the ability to go to OAH when you're affected by significant regulatory permitting decisions that now impact every aspect, every facet of our lives, you should be allowed at least one shot to go before, and this is the key word, an impartial adjudicator, decision maker. And you know, it's interesting, that 90% denial rate tracks very well with what my good friend, former Chief uh, Judge Julian Mann said when he advocated at and, and did a, had a study done that showed that under the old version of the APA, over 90%, 95%, I think it was, percent of the time when an ALJ would issue what then was called a recommended decision that went against the state agency, regulatory agency's determination. Those were rejected by the commission when it came back to them for final review. Fancy that, the commission. Yeah, it's interested, interested party. That triggered the legislature to amend their APA and say, you know what? Administrative law judges are the impartial decision makers and that's where we can develop a record that gives everybody a chance to have their say and those ought to be binding unless there's a clear error of law or a clear uh, abuse of discretion. So now our APA gives administrative law judges that level of, if you will, finality or final authority on, again, evaluating these, these hundreds of different regulatory processes that require mother may I from the administrative state. Everyone should have their, their chance, their chance to be heard. That is all our clients ever asked for. This could have been over five years ago. Because as counsel conceded, the minute we got to OAH, and by the way, she says, well, DOT quickly settled. The division's attorneys were there. DEQ's counsel was there. We had a mediation in front of my good friend Glenn Dunn. And yeah, we got it done and everybody compromised. But the point is, so let me get this straight. It was frivolous to have concerns about these impacts, the wall, the estuary, whether these concerns that have been raised, and again, there's dozens of pages in that stack written by our clients, not just the one page, but on the one page, clients just read what the form said, attach a page, a, a sheet of paper. That's what they did. And now their ox is being gored for having done what the form said to do, and you only have 20 days? Lastly, so what should happen here? Shoot, I, I think you could issue a PC simply affirming the trial court and be done with it. But if you do take the time to read all of the record, you'll see how hard they fought against us on everything. To be heard, you know, to be covered by this statute, on and on. And against the TRO, even though it didn't do anything to hurt the regulatory agency, this process needs to be fair. And for it to be fair, frivolous needs to mean just what it says. And the courts need to look with a far more forgiving eye. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Rebuttal. Three quick things. We'll see if I get to them. First, we're not here to address the administrative state. The General Assembly put together the gatekeeper statute. Whether or not it's biased, that's the statute we followed. It's a quasi-judicial process. The commission serves as a judge. I think that um, it's fair to say that a judge doesn't press a claim, and that would indicate that 619 does not apply here. Second, there can be many reasons to settle a case. NCDOT had a failing bridge across the straits. The fact that it wanted to um, get moving on that project says nothing about whether the commission was substantially justified. And the third thing, we've heard a lot about um, the fact that petitioners say they just did what was requested. They did one page. Well, one page can be fine. A petitioner could say this deck um, in front of the setback line is bigger than this rule says it can be. The deck is 50 feet. That could be on one page. Petitioners do it all the time. But in this case, petitioners did not connect the dots. They didn't do that. 
they didn't explain why the, the permit itself, which has 70 conditions showing how NCDOT was required to mitigate this, take design considerations for that, address wetlands problems here, uh, was inconsistent with the Commission's rules. For that reason, we respectfully request that this Court hold that the Commission, despite failing to prevail on its interpretation of frivolous, was substantially justified as a matter of law, and it was error to award fees. Thank you. Thank you, Council. Thank you both. Mr. Clark.